it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks. Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 213, and we're going to go back to answering some great listener questions. We got a fantastic one from Kevin from New Zealand, which we are going to answer tonight. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking through and working through this question because he's got some really good, interesting nuggets in here. So Andrew and I thought this might be a very interesting discussion for everyone. So I will go ahead and start reading the question. So I have, I started investing in November last year in New Zealand stocks and moved to U.S. shares about March this year. Intrinsic value. I hear you guys talk about it all the time and have looked at a few ways to calculate and am avidly reading the current Nuggets series. I would like to add a calculation to my sheets that identifies what I think the value of a company or share is so I can understand if I'm paying a dollar for a dollar. Is there a good go-to formula that I could use for this and that would work in New Zealand given the different reporting and financial system? Be great to get any advice on this as I am comfortable with buying into businesses but struggling when to jump out of ones that I bought prior to following the VTI system. I have some shares that are doing really well and some not so much. I plan to put all of them through the VTI once I understand which numbers are the most relevant. I think I may be holding on a bit too tightly to Warren Buffett's number one rule, and I'm holding when perhaps I should be moving on and accepting the bad decisions I may have made earlier whilst mostly likely speculating. Many, many thanks and keep up the great work. Regards, Kevin. So, Andrew, let's go ahead and kind of start taking this question apart. So what are your thoughts on the first part of Kevin's question here? So basically intrinsic value. And he was talking about your nugget series, which, by the way, that's a weekly email that you send out. Super cool. You put a bunch of helpful links to different things, investing mm-hmm. and personal finance. So people can subscribe to the email list for free, stockmarketpdf.com, and you can get access to that. And the intrinsic value. So obviously, everything about this question, talking about how do you buy stocks and then how do you sell the ones that you've made mistakes on. And intrinsic value is tough because... Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And while that can be kind of opaque and maybe discouraging at the same time, 
I think understanding how companies are valued as a process. And I think starting with the basics is a great place to start. And really, if you think about the basics of a company, they bring in sales, they have costs, and they have profits. And so we want companies that can grow those profits over time because that's how their stocks become worth more. So that's kind of where I would start. Is you'd start with the basics. And if, if you don't know anything about the stock market, you start there and then you figure out, okay, well, how can I learn about a company's profits? Well, there's this thing called the price to earnings ratio. And what that tells you, I mean, you're not going to be able to buy a company dollar for dollar. I know he mentioned the dollar for dollar concept. Mm-hmm. You can't buy a company for a dollar and expect $1 in profit. There's always going to be a premium there. And one of the ratios that helps you to measure that is called the price to earnings ratio. And it tries to tell you for however many dollars you're putting in, how many earnings is the company earning for you. And so that's taken from the stock price in the market and comparing it to the company's earnings. So that would be, I guess, the first step. And I think that's hopefully an easier concept and it gives people enough to chew on. I guess if somebody understood the price to earnings ratio and wanted to get more advanced, you know, that's that's a tough one. But how would you unpack going to maybe step number two from that? Oh boy. Yeah. That's where it starts to get a little more, it can become more complicated and you have to think about it in a variety of ways. So I think the first thing that you have to understand is when you are valuing a company, you are trying to assign a value that you think it's worth. And the comment that Andrew made about the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That is really, that's really what it comes down to. Valuation or valuing a company is an art. It's also a science. And there's the number part of it, which makes it a science. And there's formulas and all kinds of different ratios and things like that, that you can take this number and plug that number in and all those kinds of things. And you can argue to the cows come home about what kinds of ratios you should or shouldn't use, what's the right thing to use, what's not the right thing to use. There's lots of varying degrees of who's right and who isn't right. It all comes back to what you think the value of that particular company is. Just like you think of the value of the house is, the car is, the guitar, the steak, the milk, whatever it is, we all have a particular value. And when we're talking about what we think things are worth, there's lots of conversation here in the United States about inflation. And there's lots of conversation about the price of gas or the price of milk. It's all relative to what we think it should be worth. And when it's more than that, then we feel like it's expensive. The same kind of idea applies when you buy a stock in the stock market. And it doesn't matter whether it's Apple or PayPal or Tesla or DoorDash or Airbnb or Berkshire Hathaway. It all comes down to what you think the company is worth and what you consider a fair price to buy it for. How do you figure that out? Well, there's no simple, easy way to do it. And if there was, then Andrew and I would be out of a job because then everybody and their brother could do it. So the multiple that Andrew was talking about, the price to earnings ratio, is probably the most common, I guess, easiest metric to use. The only trouble with using a metric like a price to earnings is relative. And what that means is that you are comparing one ratio to another. And in some cases, you could be comparing it to itself. In other words, I could look at the price to earnings ratio of Berkshire Hathaway or Apple 
and I can compare it to Apple. And so I could say that one year, the price to earnings ratio is 20, for example, and the other year it's 18. So now I'm saying that this year's is more expensive, but that's only in relation to last year. There's one kind of, I guess, hurdle to get to overcome. The other hurdle to overcome is you have to compare them. You can also take that PE ratio and compare it to other companies in the stock market. So if you take Apple and you look at the PE of Apple, let's say again, it's 20 and you compare that to a company like Microsoft or even Amazon. So Microsoft has a PE of, let's say 30, but Amazon has a PE of 45. Well, now you're saying to yourself that Apple's cheaper than the other two companies because their PE is lower than the other two. Okay, fine. That may be the case, but where it gets tricky is when you compare them to other markets, maybe outside of what Apple operates in, or if you compare it to other types of companies that may have different types of businesses. And I'll, I'll give you a couple examples here. So let's say that you compare Apple to Wells Fargo. So Apple is a computer company. Their business operations are much lighter in that they're a far more profitable company because of the nature of how they, they operate and what they sell. Wells Fargo is a very capital intensive business with lots of money and their margins are much, much lower and it's just far less profitable than a company like Apple is. So a PE for a bank like Wells Fargo could very well be 8, 10, 12. And so now you're looking at Wells Fargo and comparing it to Apple and you go, wow, that's cheaper. And if you compare it to Microsoft and Amazon, our earlier uh, examples, it's even cheaper than them. You're like, wow, what a deal. This is steel. It's awesome, but not so fast. And so now you're looking at a company like Wells Fargo, and you're deciding that it's cheaper. Well, yeah, it is. It's cheaper on a relative basis than the other companies that you compared it to. But now to really get a sense of whether Wells Fargo is cheap or not, you have to compare it to other banks because you have to keep it within the same sector to make sure that it's a relative comparison, that it's it's an apple to apple comparison. Because if you compare Wells Fargo to Amazon, you're really comparing an apple to a Kiwi. It's just they're light years apart. They're nothing alike. And so it's not a fair comparison. It'd be like buying a car. If you go to buy a, a Hyundai and you compare the price of a Hyundai to a BMW, well... <laughs> They're not going to be the same. They're not going to be in a light year of the same. So it, 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 the same idea works with stocks. And so you have to think about just beyond just a simple PE ratio. You have to think about beyond what am I comparing it to? Because again, it's a relative, it's relative to itself. It's relative to other companies you compare it to. And if you compare it to companies outside of its sector or its industry, you're not going to get a, a fair comparison. You could make a mistake. You could buy something that actually is really kind of expensive. And again, when we're talking about expensive, we're not talking about the actual price. So if you look at a company, company A that's being $50 a share. And you look at company B, that's also $50 a share. Dollar-wise, they're exactly the same. But the value of those companies could be light years apart. The PE ratio for company A could be, I don't know, 15. And the one for company B could be 125. So 
the one that's got a PE under 25 is super expensive because in essence, what you're doing is you're paying 125 times more for that dollar of earnings than you are for that dollar of earnings for company A, which only has a PE of 15. So hopefully that makes sense to kind of go back real quickly. A PE ratio is a relationship between the price that the company is selling for in the market versus the profits or the earnings that the company earned for that particular period of time that you're measuring, whether it's a year or whether it's a quarter. And so it's just a simple ratio of the price versus compared to the earnings. And generally, the lower the number, the air quote, cheaper the company is. So hopefully that's, I guess, a good starting point. Where should we go from here? Do we want to delve into some of the more complicated parts of this? Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. No, no, I'll just give one additional component. And I think it really encapsulates whether you're doing a full DCF, like super complex spreadsheet, or you're trying to keep it super simple. And Peter Lynch is somebody who popularized this Unfortunately, I wish this was popularized more. Peter Lynch, one of those great guys, just like really bridge the gap for investors who might be everyday normal people 
and really make it approachable and give them enough to move along and, and start to learn about the stock market. So if you haven't read any of his books, Beating the Streets, fantastic. And One Up on Wall Street's also great. And he is one of the best mutual fund managers we've ever seen. So for his time period, he always talked about the PEG. So you're taking the PE ratio and you're just adding an element of growth there. So to go back to your example with Wells Fargo and Apple, if Wells Fargo is the Hyundai and Apple's the BMW, well, guess what? The BMW goes a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, profits are good when it comes to businesses. But what you want is you want those profits to grow over time. And so what you'll tend to see in the stock market is the companies that can grow the fastest, those tend to have the highest price to earnings multiples. And so that's where what Peter Lynch, he uses the PEG and it makes it really simple. It just adds growth into the equation and then you get a simple number and you can use the PEG now to compare the PE and the growth and compare it company by company. And that can help, I think, do something more broadly across other industries where you can start to get more of a apples to apples comparison because you are taking that into account. I mean, you look at something mature like banking, it's probably not going to grow at like 15% a year, particularly one of the big mature banks. They are big and so they need a lot of extra profits in order to get bigger. They're getting a lot of deposits and all of that now, but it's still, they need big amounts to grow. And just at that size, it just, you have slower growth. And so that you'll see lower PE ratios for there. Somebody like Apple, I mean, is there anything like the iPhone and the whole iPhone ecosystem? And just the fact that people, people will put their phone payments as like one of their bills now it's like i've got to pay rent i got to pay insurance oh yeah and i got to pay for my apple Mm -hmm. phone they're very efficient with the capital and they're able to make that grow and so investors recognize that i think the science of it when you talk about the art and the science of intrinsic value the science of it i think comes down to the earnings and then if you want to get to the next level you look at free cash flow that's what we do but the art of it is really interpreting that growth. And that's where the eye is in the beauty of the beholder. Because I could think that Apple's great, but somebody next to me could think that it sucks. And so maybe they think that Apple is only going to grow 5% a year moving forward. Maybe I think it's 7%. And so that difference between where we think that the companies will grow moving forward and how we interpret what a company has done, where they're at, and what they're likely to do that's what changes what I think is fair price from what you think is a fair price. Yeah, that's a great example. And I 100% agree with that. And I wish that Peter Lynch was talked about a little bit more because he is definitely, he's right up there with Warren Buffett as being one of the better teachers out there of taking complicated subjects and breaking them down into pieces that people could understand without having a degree in finance. He lays things out that lay people can really easily understand. He has a lot of great phrases that are really related and he puts things in a way that just makes it more approachable and accessible. And I guess to kind of continue a little bit of what Andrew was talking about with the growth part of it. Yes, sir. I think we should get off the rabbit hole and and move on. Do you mind if I like butt in here? Not at all. So speaking of really great phrases, this actually goes to Kevin's second part of his question. Uh, He talked about Warren Buffett's rule number one. So what was that rule? 
Uh, don't lose money. Don't lose money. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't, don't forget, forget rule number, rule one. number one. So in the application of how he's talking about it, he's looking across his portfolio. And I think this is natural as you grow as an investor and you start to learn more about the stock market. You can start to look at your portfolio and it can start to look real ugly, <laughs> depending on how long you've done it and how much you've learned and how quick that's happened. So what are your thoughts on Kevin's second part of this question where he talks about, on the one hand, not wanting to lose money on what he's picked. On the other hand, feeling like maybe he didn't make the best decisions on some of the stocks he has. Yeah, that's you know trying to decide when you want to get out and when's the right time to sell is arguably... 10 times harder than when it is to buy because so many of our behavioral biases kick in ideas like I don't want to sell out because it could get back at some point. If I just hold on to it long enough, there's also the, the idea that we feel a loss, what two or three times more than we feel a win. So emotionally it's more taxing on us to feel a loss than it is to feel a win. And and those are just a few of the behavioral biases that we deal with when we're trying to make a decision about whether we want to, to cut bait and cut our losses, whatever phrase you want to assign to that. It's easily, I think, the hardest thing, one of the hardest things to do when you're investing. So how do you go about doing it? I think there are several things that you have to, I guess, these are some of the things that I guess I think about. So when I think about what's going on with the company, if I see something in the company that I think is fundamentally changed about the business, then I'm out. In other words, if it's a company that has has always sold tires and now all of a sudden they've decided they want to be in spaghetti, I'm out. We're done here. <laughs> Not going to happen. When you see something that has fundamentally changed about the business, whatever it may be, then it's time to change. It's time to get out. Other things that could happen would be, let's say that there's been a management change and the person that has took, taken over is leading it in a direction that you don't believe is going to be in the best interest of the business as well as you as a shareholder. I'm out. Then, because the management, the people that drive the bus, they're the really the ones that set the tone for what's going to happen with the company now and in the future. And if they're setting about bad foundation now, then it's going to make it even doubly harder to overcome in the future. Ideally, when we buy a company, as Peter Lynch has said, <laughs> ideally, when we've bought a company, we want to buy a company that any monkey or any idiot can operate because eventually one will. Ideally, when you pick it, you want that. But hindsight is always 20, right? So on the back end, if we've bought a company and maybe it's not doing well and management is not in a great position or they're just not leading it well, then you have other decisions to make. But the other side of things and the other decision you have to make is you have to look at kind of the overall sector that the business is operating in and decide whether you think that this is something that can continue to grow and be a profitable enterprise. And you think about something like, well, a good example is what happened to Nokia phones and Kodak. They were in an industry that changed fairly quickly and if you weren't invested in those companies and you didn't see the writing on the wall, then you would have been left holding the bag. And so 
sometimes you have to pay attention to what's going on with your investments. And if you're buying car companies that are not trying to move towards any sort of electric vehicle at all in their inventory in now or in the future, you got to ask yourself, you know, is this really going to be a long, good long-term investment? Because whether you agree with that on a political side of things, it's coming. And if you don't change with that, then you could be in, in a big hurt. So you have to think about what's happening with the business and you have to think about some of those other things I was talking about. So those are just kind of starting points. What are, what are your, some of your thoughts? You know, I think that covers most of it and you can get so complicated with when to sell. And if you're really looking for an approach where this is what I try to do, I try to do my best to find the best businesses that I can buy them at a good price and then let the businesses do the rest. So you could totally take an active approach, you know, be trading in and out, trying to pick up pennies in front of a steamroller. A lot of value-based people will do that. And I used to do that, decided I like the longer-term approach now, the more hands-off approach. And so if you're doing that hands-off, I'm going to buy, I'm going to let things compound and let those businesses do the work for me, then you really want to minimize how much you sell and not don't be spending all this time micromanaging your portfolio. I mean, I came to the realization where you spend more time figuring out when you're going to sell, that gives you no time to figure out what's the next opportunity. That can be a huge thing. And that's why I think the idea that you've described, Dave, this such a simple question, you know, has anything within the business fundamentally changed? And the first time you said that, I think it might have been on the show, but it really stuck. And uh, one of our listeners, Gilbert, he mentioned, I think it was on Facebook or Twitter, uh, you know, repeating that. And it's it's a great reminder. And it's something that I try to remind myself of all the time. And Me even too. when we were preparing, <laughs> we were preparing to, to answer this question and it, and it slipped my mind. So I'm glad you brought it up. And it really just comes down to that. I think one way that can kind of give you an indication a lot of times if something has fundamentally changed with the business is if they've always been profitable and all of a sudden they're not mm-hmm. for me, that's one of my sell rules. And so if they, if they go negative earnings, then I'm selling on that. And that can be a good rule of thumb to keep in mind. I guess the last part of the, um, the question about, you know, what do I do with all these ugly ducklings in my portfolio? I would say this whole thing, process of managing a portfolio being a stock market investor it's a long process and so you know just because you feel like you're a hundred times smarter than you were yesterday you're probably not <laughs> and you know some of the companies might actually be good and, and you might have overlooked some of the good aspects of it so go to Buffett again because he said something about you want to evolve and improve the way you do things but he says do it over time don't do it all at once mm-hmm. and so if you can just try to think through and and do a deeper analysis and and maybe slowly transform your portfolio rather than just chopping it all and starting over. I mean, for all you know, there could be great parts about these businesses that you're completely missing that you'll find out two months later and you'll be like, oh, I wish I didn't let go so soon because I didn't think of this or didn't think of that. Yep. I agree with, I keep coming back to this idea of when we have to, when we have to make changes with our portfolio, we have to think about kind of digging up the weeds and you don't have to go through your whole garden and dig them all up all at once. And 
I think a great practice to do, let's say that you have four or five companies that you're like kind of on the fence about is when you decide to cut bait with one of them or two of them is find some place that you can take some notes and write down why you're making this decision. Because as you, as part of your learning is to think about the companies that you let go is just as important as the ones you decide to buy. Because a lot of times the decisions that lead you to make a decision to let a company go could be something that you can look for in a new company that you're investigating or analyzing. And a lot of times there are companies that you will buy that you will think are the greatest thing ever. And then over a period of time, maybe your views will change. And it not necessarily that the stock will go down, but maybe it just kind of trades sideways for a while. It just doesn't go anywhere. And I'm actually dealing with that myself. I have a company that I bought a while ago, Intel, and I bought it almost two years ago. And it's really, frankly, gone almost nowhere in two years. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 is like, you know, up a hundred thousand percent since then. Not that much, but it seems like it. But one of the things that I've been struggling with is that I look at my idea of why I thought the company would do well, and it's not playing out. And if I look at the financials of the company, it's really strong. But sometimes what you think is a great idea or a great investment, the market may not recognize, or it may take a long time for it to recognize. And so just because we come up with what we think is a great idea, doesn't always mean it's going to go that way. And so that's what I'm struggling with right now is do I, do I continue to hang on to Intel or do I just, you know, realize that I, you know, my thesis was wrong and I made a mistake and cut bait and I haven't come to the conclusion on that. I'll probably let everybody know when I do, but those are all things that definitely go through my mind when I'm thinking about, you know, a company like that. And it's hard. It's really hard, but I think a great practice is to to write down some of those ideas that you have of why you sell the company. And when you look at those, when you go to buy new companies and see if any of these new companies fall into any of those those patterns or those categories, because that could help you avoid getting into a company that somewhere down the road, you may have to turn around and get rid of. So we're going to, with that, we're going to go ahead and kind of wrap up. I uh, wanted to thank Kevin for taking the time to send us that great question. We really enjoyed talking about this and hopefully we helped answer some of Kevin's questions. I know there's something else we kind of wanted to tag on about that. Yeah, we do have this thing called the little package evaluation. We haven't talked about it on our podcast, but it's Definitely very, very advanced. So that's kind of why we don't talk about it. But you can go on our website and check that out. I use one of the, I actually use both of the DCF spreadsheets in there when I'm estimating intrinsic value for companies. So, you know, for people who do get across that bridge and want to really use the kind of tools that we use, that that would be the place. And then obviously the value trap indicator too. I use that on every stock as well. But that's more, you know, that's a whole nother conversation for another day. Yeah, exactly. But the, those are great tools that, that can help you with some of the intrinsic value ideas that we are talking about as well. So you can check those out at the website. We also have our, our Twitter feed, which uh, I've been running now for a few months and we've gotten a lot of great followers on there. So thank you every, everybody that's following us. That's really humbling that you guys consider us valuable enough that you would 
give us some of your time. And on Fridays, I try to put out uh, little Twitter threads about different companies. I've talked about Google. I've talked about Visa. I talked about Topicus last week, which is a Canadian company. Well, actually, a Netherlands company. And then uh, this week is going to be Palantir. So there's you know all kinds of interesting stuff. And you can reach out to us and ask us any questions on there as well. So I guess without any further ado, we'll go ahead and sign off with thank you again for sending us the great questions. You guys go out there and invest with the margin of safety. Emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.